1: Jack Whitehall is back on the road 15 years after he started his stand-up career uh, back at the Edinburgh Fringe. fringe, fringe. I hope I've done the maths right as well. you will set me right in a minute. Don't say anything yet. He's been very busy in the interim, selling out arenas across the globe, writing and starring in award-winning TV series like Fresh Meat, Bad Education and his widely celebrated hit Netflix show, Travels with My Father. Also in recent years, he's even broken down the gates of La La Land, starring alongside Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt in Disney's Jungle Cruise and in Clifford the Big Red Dog for Paramount. And now, as I said, Jack's back on the stage touring the UK with his highly anticipated live show, Jack Whitehall, settled down, And he joins me now, I'm delighted to say, here in the studio. And you look relatively unscathed, Jack, but I know you've had a run-in with Vanessa Feltz. <laughs> you, you've probably got a bit of PTSD. Do you want to
2: offload at all? I'm still reeling from that, yeah. I started waxing lyrical about how much of a fan I was of Vanessa Feltz as a broadcaster, and then all of a sudden she appeared on This Morning, and before I knew it, she was straddling me on the sofa. She was also, for some reason, Breakfast wearing... Breakfast television yeah, as well, wasn't it? I think she was on a limo bike to off to her <laughs> next engagement and she turned the limo bike around because she'd heard that I was on the show, returned to the studio and then crashed my interview but was still wearing the helmet and jacket from her limo bike did and so fear, was straddling me in a, in a helmet.
1: Did you hit fear for a moment for your life? I mean, it's not It every all day, flashed
2: that before it's... me. Yeah, that entire, like, um, you know, biog that you just read out there, that was flashing before my very eyes as Vanessa Feltz was... Chucking her leg over me.
1: Well, that's good, because yeah, you don't get to say that every day. Um, that, that's very good, because it'll all be fresh in your mind exactly. uh, to unravel with me. Um, obviously, you were there to, and are here, I'm sure, just for the pleasure of my company, obviously, uh, but also to promote your uh, new UK tour, Settle Down. Um, and in it, uh, and it's not exactly what I imagine to be great, sort of fecund territory for comedy gold, the subject of growing up, yeah. I think, and, and maturing...
2: I think so yeah well i I guess the the comedy comes from my um s- s- sort of reluctant attempts to do so and 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 my my struggles to become a grown up and live up to the expectations of a lot of my peer group that have maybe settled down and are living that life already uh and I think you know there's a lot of uh stories and anecdotes as, as well about like my miscreant past and and how i 'm trying to let go of that and and grow up and uh Become a little bit more of a, a fully fledged adult, uh, and I talk about you know the four years that have happened basically since I toured last because a lot of life has happened in that time, and I've uh, got a you know long term partner and a dog and a house, and and very much feel like I am now settling down. So it's 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 all about that.
1: So let's delve into whether the laughs are there in a moment. But where from the uh, the reticence to grow up? What's so bad about it?
2: I don't know. I don't think there's necessarily anything bad with it. I just think I'd always like. Uh, had myself down as being one of those people that will be perennially in arrested development and be <laughs> a man child for the rest of my life and i oh, like fully accepted that and i was like i i know i like i i always thought i was like i dread to think what i'm gonna be like when i'm in my 50s i'm going i know i've met that person and i'm like i, I know i'm gonna be that but then, you know, I, I feel like now maybe there's hope for me and I, and I won't be tragic at that age. And I might have got all of that out of my system now and I, and I'm, and I may be able to be um, a better person well, <laughs> moving you forward. Th-
1: you say you've met that person and we've all seen you um, on travels with your father. Yeah. Um, is that the person that you're afraid you're going to turn into in, well, in your 50s? Because <laughs> let's face it, we all do.
2: Yeah, no, that, that, there is also the looming spectre of, uh, of my father and, and uh, also recognising recognizing that there are traits of his that i'm beginning to adopt and very reluctantly uh feeling like there are elements of my character that are maybe similar to his that I don't necessarily want to see burgeoning. Uh, but yeah, that's, he's always there. He's always uh, looming in the distance. And, and uh, also, it's nice to be able to do this uh, this stand-up show on my own and to have a solo venture again and to be out of his to shadow. Be free. To be freed. To be freed, freed. <laughs> from him. <laughs> the burden of Michael Whitehall.
1: Is that how you felt um, at boarding school at, at Marlborough when when you were a kid? I mean, was, was, was there a, a desperation to escape uh, from From your fathers <laughs> from overbearing presence he 's never going to speak to me if I ever meet him missy Um i 'm painting a very bad picture of no, him but but... also i 'm worried about
2: slagging him off, but this is very rare because we 're on a radio station that he actually listens to, so one has to be very careful you know I can talk hello until the cows Mr. Come home about him on talk sport he 's never going to be tuning into that. I need to be careful what i say um, but yeah, i mean uh i Yeah, I make a lot of jokes about that um, and have done historically, but the reality is I think actually him sending me away to boarding school (laughs) was probably the best thing that could have ever happened because... He's very much a kind of less is more type of personality, and I think uh, spending, uh, you know, um, sparing amounts of time with him when I was growing up probably was able to um, give us the very, you know, strong relationship and bond that we we've gone on to to, to forge.
1: But watching the program, he, he, you know, he he clearly has quite the strong character, mm. um, and I wondered if, in a way, that gave you that gave you something to really push back against, and in a way formed your whole comedy persona you know in, yeah. in other words is gratitude a word you should be using jack whitehall <laughs> <or? laughs> no it's uh, it's definitely
2: true and you know the reality is he uh, I, people always ask me like who my sort of comedy inspiration was and what made me want to become a comedian and and, he, and the reality is it was him like more so than any other comedian that i'd seen on television or i heard on the radio it was always the fact that my dad was a very very naturally funny person and when i was growing up i could see how great he was when he was you know recounting a story and, and making people laugh and and it was this kind of superpower that he had and i saw the way uh, people connected with him when he was able to make them laugh and i thought that's definitely something that i want to do and uh you know he's also a very hard tough and it remains a very tough crowd and uh you know for me making him laugh growing up was always like a a great challenge but when Some i was able Everest to crack him i was like oh that's the best feeling in the world so yeah, for both of those reasons he was very important in the kind of like formulation of me as uh, a comedian.
1: I mentioned that, that you went to Marlborough College and you've talked in the past about kind of the difficulty of breaking into the comedy uh, business uh, as, as the recipient of, of great privilege and, yeah. and you know, coming from not really what you imagine to be the kind of funniest most humor worthy yeah. of, of backgrounds how did how did you i mean how did you actually get the courage to think I can do this despite the handicap <laughs> of being a public school boy
2: well, I think honestly at the beginning I, I, I saw it as that and I saw it as something that would be an impediment to uh, I mean obviously not opportunity necessarily but uh, having an audience engage with you and being able to be a comedian from a position of like low status like seemingly as a you know privileged public school boy didn't feel like a great angle as a as a as a comedian and i was so worried that the minute i opened my mouth on stage that everyone in the audience would hate me and it would be an uphill struggle from there and so for years i kind of tried to mask it and uh, affected a kind of mockney accent and and did like thinly veiled personas and character comedy and deadpan one-liners and anything i could to get away from actually having to be myself on stage and eventually realized that actually maybe the the answer was to just try and own it and send it up a bit and, uh, you know, self-deprecate and use it as my kind of, you know, unique selling point. And the minute I did that, I I suddenly unlocked my comic voice and uh, was able to create a slightly more distinctive persona on uh you know the stand-up circuit as this kind of like foppish idiotic man baby (laughs) and that became my 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 act basically so yeah it it was strangely the thing that i was sort of trying to get away from that actually was the 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 key to sort of finding some success Mm -hmm. as a stand-up
0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: You've mentioned the uh, man-baby phrase uh, a couple of times, and of course, um, most of your successful comedy has been based around that whole idea of immaturity and, Mm. and, you know, youthful rebellion and so on. Do you worry about now tackling growing up and maturity and, and the sort of dis- you know, I mean what your audience is going to make of it. I remember going to see um, Billy Connolly at mm. the um, what was then called the Hammersmith Odeon yeah. and he only recently, I think maybe a couple of years before, and he'd gone to live in LA yeah. and you know, he was the big yin, Glasgow yeah. pubs, tough, you know yeah. and he was up on stage telling jokes about like nannies and limousines <laughs> and it was a really difficult night but like, yeah, I don't yeah. think it really worked very well. I think he sort of managed, obviously he's a comedy genius you know yeah, he yeah. managed to to pull it around in the end but you know it, you felt like you know tender hooks. Yeah, yeah yeah so do you think your audience has grown up with you or might they be really well, disappointed that you've left them behind
2: <laughs> i've always said i'm so lucky because for a lot of comedians that become successful that's one of the hardest things is if you've come from a background like billy connolly or you're an, an everyman comedian like peter k or john bishop it must get quite hard when suddenly you're living quite a surreal life and you've still Still got to go out on stage with your audience and do relatable material. And I've always said that I'm very lucky because my life was never relatable <laughs> and I always had this ridiculous, like, uh, plummy existence. And that you know, I've never had to go through that like difficult transition of suddenly doing stories that aren't relatable because they were just never relatable in the first place.
1: <laughs> You've to think... use that as a superpower,
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think they expect it, but the American stuff as well, I think you know, there is obviously, um a degree of, like, having to write about what's happening in your life because that's always going to be the source of material is the stuff that's happening in your, you know, your day-to-day life. And the reality is a lot of my life now is spent working and, and I li- live, you know... I,
1: Don't say I live hate in America but,
2: No, but I, I spend quite a lot of time in America. But... I like to feel like when I come back here, most of my observations of America are coming from the perspective of a Brit out there that finds it, like, maddening at times. And I think that's, again, like, what's unlocked you know for me being able to talk about that on stage is that i'm not coming back and oh it's amazing out there i'm coming and going these people are ridiculous let me tell you about it and so whenever i talk about like los angeles or or touring in america all of the stories are very much at the expense of our american cousins and that tends to go down quite well when you're playing um Milton
1: Keynes or wherever I am. It's like they say in Tropic Thunder, isn't it? You can't go full. <laughs> yeah, 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 full. So, yeah. So how will we know when you've gone too far? I want to move on to America in a moment and then your observations about it. But first of all, you have um, alluded to the fact that we have uh, many of our audience and we welcome them and embrace them, are mature, yes. uh, like your dad. Yeah. Um, and I wonder what you uh, have highlighted or discovered to be amusing about growing up. Growing up, I mean, or maturing. Like, what are the good things? We're, we're all sitting here waiting. We're all mature, uh, yeah, <laughs> and we want to know from you, Jack. I mean, what's com- great about it? I mean, co- Sell it commitment
2: to me. and responsibility. I think were mainly the things that I was probably terrified of. That feel like quite grown up concepts. And there are things that I've, um, you know. Uh, committed committed to that i've actually gone oh this is making my life far more fulfilled my relationship being one such example but also you know she she taught me into getting a dog and i was like this is you know we talked about how maybe having a kid and i was like i'm i'm don't think i'm ready for that so we'll do the interim step first of getting a dog and if we can keep the dog alive then we'll have a kid so we got this ridiculous dog um and ridiculous uh, why it looks like it came out of a Kinder Surprise. It's like, I wanted like a guard dog, and we ended up with a toy poodle, uh, and <laughs> it's this preposterous creature. And I've never been a dog person in my life, and mainly because I, have you know, probably didn't like the idea of having the responsibility of looking after an animal and having to take it for walks and uh, you know to vets and groomers and all of these things. And and then I've got this dog, and I'm like, oh my god, it's actually worked. It's really thawed my icy heart, and. Uh, I am now obsessed with this um, just ridiculous... Yapping, crapping ball of fluff.
1: But haven't you just committed the cardinal sin? Because I think you're allowed to talk about your girlfriend Roxy in it, public, and you're allowed to use her as the butt of yeah. your humour, and and a huge part of of your routine. You know, exposes your day to day life with her. But you can't mention the dog. You just mentioned the dog. Yeah, I
2: know. And I mentioned the dog <laughs> again. So yeah, that's the one uh, thing that she gets annoyed about is if I'm disparaging about our dog. Although you know, I so I do talk about Roxy quite a lot in the show, and and, and it's amazing that she's. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, allows me to to be so kind of open and indiscreet about our relationship and our life together.
1: How long have you um, been together?
2: We've been together over three years now. Yes, good innings um, with those jokes. Exactly. Well last night though I made a, a terrible error because we started watching the Ed Sheeran documentary and the whole first episode of this show is just like a love letter to his incredible wife and it paints this amazing picture of their relationship and she's like and she said to me, she's like, I want to be married to Ed Sheeran. <laughs> <laughs> and then they they show the sequence of him talking about the song and how he wrote the song perfect about his girlfriend and I was like, yeah, you, you know, it's probably better to go out with a musician. And if you go out with Ed Sheeran, you get, uh, you're his muse and you get a song written about you called Perfect. And if you go out with me, you're my muse and you get 10 minutes of material about our sex life.
1: <laughs> with your parents watching, with which I think watch. happened the yeah, other day, oh didn't God. it?
2: Well, they're not watching during the sex, no, to be no. clear. They watched the material <laughs> about me talking about our, our, our bedroom antics.
1: That must have been a slightly <laughs> uncomfortable gig, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, that was a slightly uncomfortable gig uh especially as it was one of those ones where you could actually see the audience often they're plunged into darkness and i sometimes prefer that but this was one where there was a little bit of spill into the uh, auditorium and i could see the whites of everyone's eyes and then i picked out her aunt who was looking up at me expectantly as i launched into a routine about her niece and then uh, aborted it very rapidly as i realized what i was about to say
1: do you request that keep them dark
2: keep, keep them dark, dark. Keep i don't them want dark. to see them. well yeah if i'm performing in essex from now on it will <laughs> will be keep them in the dark
1: um next saturday i think you're you're kicking things off in woking yeah. um and um I, I wondered how much has changed in terms of you said four years since since your last mm. comedy tour and and how much jeopardy <laughs> how much jeopardy do you feel uh, and is there involved in getting on stage every night you know and opening your mouth obviously you know you know it's a routine and mm. but opening your mouth to sort of fill those awkward silences and say anything that falls <laughs> out of it in a world where you know you can be cancelled at the drop of a hat for 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 mistakenly perhaps portraying yeah. something
2: well I, it's a genuine worry and especially when you're kind of building the hour and you're doing new material that hasn't been properly road tested and you know you're working it out for yourself and 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 a lot of comedy is about kind of trying to push boundaries here and there and and trying to kind of shock people and 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 you know do some kind of like subversive material but it's very it's very very difficult when you're working it through knowing that there's people in the audience that uh you know could have a camera phone or I've like had journalists um um Uh, in in the auditorium when I'm doing like new material nights and that's like a terrifying thought that you may have not like properly worded or fully formulated an idea and you put it out there into the world and then the following day it's in a newspaper that's that's very scary so you know it, it means even more so that there's a lot more kind of like Self editing and 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 being a little bit more cautious about what I say on stage, just because of not only the sensitivities, but also just the fact that everyone is potentially a reporter now.
1: Yeah, I've been. But do you worry about the sort of notion, the whole notion of acceptable comedy? You know, I mean, it, it almost feels like an oxymoron.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't really, to be honest, like feel like I'm. I'm not a comedian that does the. I don't know. The, I, I don't play it safe but i'm not like a, there are other comedians that i think have to worry about that a lot more i don't for example do a lot of politics because i just never feel like it's well, you won't that be cancelled won for me. being
1: rude about politicians it's <laughs> <No, laughs> the, the only place
2: that yeah, is that's it's still fair game but like culture wars and stuff like that i tend to veer away from things that are, are, are that are that contentious and that might land me in uh, hot water just because i've historically found out that it's not worth the the stress when when it does and i have made jokes in the past that have got me in trouble i've had historic jokes that have got me into trouble as well and come you know, back to bite you yeah come back to bite me and and repeats of shows that i performed 10 years ago that go on tv and then the following morning i'm getting a call from my publicist saying you know there have been some off complaints about a joke that you told a decade ago and you know that's just the nature of things now like it, the, the comedy landscape has moved on like a lot in the time that i've been doing it and, uh, and i always say to myself the one thing that I kind of, you know, can can give me a sort of zen approach to it all is that the joke that will get me canceled is probably already out there and it's like, you know, in the, the the depths of YouTube somewhere and may resurface at some point. So I shouldn't get too like worked up and worried about it because there's only so much kind of self-editing that you can do.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting that it hasn't mocked the week just been canceled. About the BBC, or yeah. it's not going, and and you sort of think actually it's not the program going forwards you want to worry about really. It's, yeah. a, it's yes, all those past Exactly, episodes. it's the
2: repeat on UK TV Gold <laughs> that someone's watching late at night and goes, "Oh my gosh, you can't say that anymore." Um, but yeah, and I and I, I also try and like I think to myself, I wrap my brain and and I've I've done like a deep dive of, of of all of my Twitter and YouTube like clips and things like that, and I've gone, I think everything's okay. I've watched old like stand up. Um, routines and, and like you know try to edit those but you just you just never know there might be something in but the But it's chamber. crazy
1: as well because surely that's not why you entered comedy no. as a career I mean.
2: No but also the other problem is when you start you're like you're, you you don't care about any of that and also you know well, I started so young and I was learning a lot like on the job and indeed on television like I got put on television far too early like I, I think I was just this sort of young fresh exciting face that people just thrust onto shows and I was like absolutely out of my depth and i hadn't fully formulated what my like comedy voice was or what my perspective on the world was what i wanted to make jokes about i would punch down a lot there would be so many things that i would watch back now and i would cringe at and i'd be like i wouldn't make that joke now and i wouldn't want to make that joke now and that's not someone that i would want to you know make jokes at the expense of we grow
1: up you grow up yeah
2: and 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 you need you don't don't feel the need to do that but i you know my, my my a lot of that learning was done
1: Whilst the camera was recording (laughs) yes but that's everyone's lives now isn't it i mean that's every kid growing up um just finally and very briefly um as the coronation is coming up this weekend i just wanted to ask you about the occasion i think you did a private stand-up show for for the now king charles and 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 queen consort camilla parker Bowles. how did that go
2: not great i mean i've assumed that's why i have been nfi'd to (laughs) the coronation is because i absolutely tanked that opportunity i was invited to kensington palace to perform a private gig for Charles and Camilla and all of their staff for their Christmas party. Um, I was set up to fail. There was no stage, there was no microphone. I literally had to perform in front of all of them uh, like the court jester. Uh, I did a load of jokes about going to school with Kate Middleton. I referred to her in jest as the one that got away. Uh, I made some jokes about <laughs> Prince Harry being very brave in Afghanistan because obviously a ginger in that climate uh, was, you know, really running a lot of risks. And so it was it was awful, all of that material, and, and, and none of it barely even raised a teeter. And then afterwards I was introduced to Charles and Camilla and he delivered a quite good line, to be fair, uh, in, you know, the, the, the moment where I had to bow in front of him and shake his hand and there was all this like you know protocol that you have to go through and he just went oh yeah it's not so great i think next year we'll probably book a magician (laughs) (laughs) wow that is some serious shade